I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to this week's episode of the Endless Hustle podcast. I am Bro Bible's Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by my esteemed co-host, Senior Correspondent for Celebrity Page TV, Arthur Cade. Arthur, tell the people what we have in store for them today. Well, we've got a pretty amazing episode. First of all, Jalen Rose, one of my favorites, joins us, and dude was just absolutely electric. For me, it was such a thrill because the Fab Five is my all-time college team, and I told him that. So to have him on and to be able to reminisce just brought me back to my childhood. And then, of course, talking some Kobe. It was awesome. So I'm super excited to share that interview. And then we have the king of IndyCar joining us, Scott Dixon, five-time champion, dude as absolutely a baller. And we covered a ton with him too. So I think it's going to be a great episode. People are going to love this. Yeah. Jalen Rose, a guy who I see come up on my TV screen about four times a week, uh, seeing him in the flesh. I got to be honest, I, I my pits were starting to sweat a little bit. And he, I had high expectations for him and he lived up to all of them. So without further ado, let's bring you the one, the only, Jalen Rose. All right, we have a monumental day here at the Endless Hustle because joining us today is one of the most charismatic people in sports media. He's one of my personal favorites. He's a member of the Fab Five, 13 years in the NBA. He's a podcaster. He's a charter school co-founder, and now he has a weekly column for the New York Post, a true jack-of-all-trades. Welcome, Jalen Hustling, hustling. Hustling. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. <laughs> Let's kick this off by talking about why a guy who made $100 million in his NBA career is still picking up 15 different jobs. Your latest one is Renaissance Man with Big Sean, correctly? September 3rd. 2002 and I talk about it on this week's column of the New York Post as well as the podcast make sure you download it right now or subscribe on Apple I tell a story that I rarely tell and it answers your question why do I hustle why am I so fearless about my goals and trying to get accomplished the things that I hope to make happen in my life is because I had a tragic circumstance happen that night an assassination attempt. I was driving a Bentley up Sunset Boulevard and got to the corner of Barrington and somebody jumped out of a Cadillac Escalade and sprayed bullets at the car and hit it nine times. What? Is that Absolutely. true? While I was a member of the Chicago Bulls averaging 20 points in the NBA. I tell that story. And so since that day, as much as I love sports and entertainment, and clearly I love my culture and I'm passionate about my community and giving back. Each day for me, I understand can be the last. So while I don't treat it like it's borrowed time, because my faith is as strong as anybody that's ever walked the face of this earth, I just appreciate it as such. And you know, if, if anybody ever listened to a lot of Drake, he say, drink champagne to his, to, all, to his accomplishments. But the problem is he found himself drinking every day. Yeah. Was this, was this uh, 
when they sprayed bullets, was that was there a motive or was it just a random act? No motive. It was a random act. I did a little intel after the fact and, and found out that that was just something that was happening to people that was leaving that spot that they felt like they had a chance to catch quote unquote slipping. And it wasn't personal at all, but it was definitely something that uh, could have cost me my life. A friend of mine who was in the car with me, his nickname is Riz. We down like four flat tires, like my childhood friend. Still walking this earth right now with a bullet that went in his cheek that's right now stuck in his neck. Since that day, that's the person that you see. Before, if those that didn't follow me in college and you didn't know bald head Jalen with bad skin and bad teeth, like that dude was an animal. Like he was bad for my health. I look back at him and was like, yo, calm down. Like that was an angry young man right there. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so after that incident, it gave me a new perspective on life. So I started to do all of the things that I felt like I should do in my life. And one of those things at that time was actually to start back taking correspondence courses. I realized that I went to Michigan for three years and I was a Dean's List student. I was an honor roll student in high school. And so I realized that I didn't go to school for three years in the cold not to finish. And at that time, I couldn't get the correspondence courses I needed online. So I ended up going to the University of Maryland, University College. And that's where I graduated from. A lot of players leave early, but not many get a chance to go back and finish. And I was fortunate enough, incidents like that gave me the inspiration to go ahead and do that. Speaking of Michigan, Jalen, the Fab Five is my all-time favorite college basketball team. When we see Zion now and all these high school players, people don't realize nobody has anything on what the Fab Five was. You guys invented branding for the younger players you're the OGs of that. Did you guys realize at that moment what you were creating in terms of branding and in terms of marketing presence? We knew we were changing the game and doing something that hadn't been done, but we didn't know how monumental it was and how many dollars it actually was generating. So you look at the modern day athlete, when Tom Brady gets traded to the Bucks. He's trademarking Tampa Bay. He's trademarking anything that might he might be able to get paid off of. See, in the early 90s, we didn't have that wherewithal. All we wanted was the opportunity to be ourselves. That, that was currency. In high school, you didn't get a chance to have multiple pairs of fresh kicks. At least I didn't. I came from a Detroit public school, and we had Nike as a sponsor, but they gave us two pairs of shoes a year. I mean... I'm kind of good at basketball and I'm playing seven days a week, multiple days, multiple days a week. Like those two pairs is kind of gone in like the first two weeks. Yeah. All love and all respect, all gratitude, but I was getting two pairs of shoes. It was just, that's just what it was. And so once you get to college, it's like, wait a minute. I wore tight shorts in high school. I didn't have a lot of kicks in high school. When I get to college, I'm not getting paid to wear these Nikes but I am under contract. So therefore, we don't want the shoes in that box, in those bags, uh-uh. Where the Deion Sanders at? Where the Bo Jackson's at? Where the Charles Barkley's? Like, what's next? <laughs> like, we, we ain't wearing those 
those jock-looking shoes that other schools around the country were wearing. Uh-uh. What are Jordans? Didn't you rail against the Fab Five nickname initially? Didn't you, like, not like it? We did. We stupidly, and I say that now, because the Fab Five is dope. That name is, like, dope. And especially, like, I'm a DJ. That's one of my hobbies. And, like, just knowing about the Beatles and all of that. At first, I was like, I, went, I ran away from it. And I was like, no, that's the Fab is them, and Fab Five Freddy is him. And I love both of them. So I was like, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. Just posers. You know? Right? And so now that we look back at it, it's kind of like when Run DMC look at their nickname and I hear DMC describe it, he said he thought it was the worst name ever. But now it sounds dope. And it is dope. You know what's crazy, Jalen, is The Last Dance when it came out, my generation and your generation, we knew how good MJ is. He's the GOAT. People didn't realize in the younger generation that MJ was the GOAT, and all of a sudden they were introduced to this guy for the first time. When the Fab Five 30 for 30 came out, you guys broke all the viewership records. People met you guys for the first time as part of that younger generation. Did it blow your mind to see how much people responded to that series and meeting you guys for the first time? It did. and. I get a chance to see it through the lens of Jimmy King and Ray Jackson, my two brothers who didn't get a chance to play 10 plus years in the NBA. To have people get reintroduced to our story, that's why it was more important for me to tell each individual story where he came from, what made him tick, so that you get an authenticity about what made us come together and why we were so special and while we moved as one, even like in music now or in the culture, like back then groups were really prevalent. My favorite artists were groups, EPMD, Wu-Tang Clan, I could go on and on and on, the Black Sheep, NWA, Outkast, go on and on and on. That's kind of like what the Fab Five wanted to be. And so five times what we wanted to call ourselves, it was like, yeah, I mean, five times one, like we move as one, like nobody bigger than the group and da da da. But then the media was like, but that's an ugly name. We're not going to name y'all that. And so as the relationship of the Fab Five, we started to understand that it was a, a sacrifice that we were all making. We weren't like going to go to a school to be the leading scorer and try to go to the league. And it wasn't a time when you went for one year and went to the NBA. So when you make that decision, you're thinking that, man, we're going to go undefeated every year. We're going to win it every year. And we're going to go to the league after – you know, our sophomore year, we're going to break all of the records. And then as you realize that the things that you're able to accomplish are bigger than life, we were like, wait a minute. We want some longer shorts. We're not wearing those. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. Not wearing those tight shorts. Chris Webber, 6'9", doing 360s in the game. He'll bust those shorts open. We're not wearing them. Nobody, uh-uh. We don't want those, uh-uh, those jock shoes. No, we want some stylish stuff. We're not getting paid, but we're going to look like it. You mentioned uh, Jimmy King and, and Ray Jackson. I mean, obviously, those guys didn't have the success that, you know, you, Juwan, or C-Web had. So I know in the past that you've kind of been advocating for, you know, a $2,500 stipend for every semester for college athletics. You know, you even urged, you know, college players to boycott March Madness a couple of years ago. We're starting to see these top recruits, you know, Jalen Green isn't going to college and going to the G League to chase the money. What's your current position on the NCAA kind of cashing in on the talents of these kids 
And what's your rebuttal to people who think that like a free college education and some Nike swag is, is payment enough? Well, it's the total oxymoron and represents indentured servitude in a lot of ways, because think about what you just said. Somebody once played in the NCAA named Jalen, except he doesn't get recognized because one of his teammates allegedly broke some rules and had a separation with the school for 10 years. The separation is forgiven. Yet when I go back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, our banners aren't hanging. My number ain't retired. I played well enough for that to happen. We all did. We all know it did. That's the hypocrisy of the entire game because they ain't returning none of that money. And so I feel while you're playing the game that you love and you're still required to be a student, not the other way around. Like when, when John Calipari gets the job at Kentucky and he looks at that roster, you're going to have to make some tough decisions about the people that are already under scholarship that may or may not fit what he does. It is not personal. It just comes with the territory. It's just the business of collegiate sports. And so it operates like professional. Like look right now during COVID, they're playing games, no people in the stands. So let me get this right. The other students to protect their safety, you're not gonna have them come to the game, but we can play the game to pay for all of the sports in the athletic department while still paying the coach top dollar, getting a shoe deal, he gets a television deal, a radio deal, get paid for all of the appearances that he wants to get. That's backward. Right. And how many of us go into the NFL? How many of us go into the NBA? If the goal is for everybody to get educated, incentivize us then. Say, hey, the people that stay for it, if you graduate in four years, we're going to give you this. You graduate in five years, we're going to give you this. Now that changes the barometer of people actually wanting to do it. Versus, hey, I need to get a job. Like, I didn't make it to the league. I played overseas. I played in the G League. I played in the D League. It ain't work. I need to get a job. Like, these are people that help colleges make multi-millions of dollars. And so that's the disconnect. It's not truly for the student athlete. That's just a term to continue to allow them to not pay you directly for your services. And you had a guy who bypassed that whole college racket. He just signed with Puma. Uh, you know, he could be the top pick in the uh, NBA draft, LaMelo Ball. Um, he broke the mold by playing in Lithuania. What does your gut tell you about LaMelo's potential in the league? Well, 360 degrees of separation. He was just on Jalen and Jacoby talking about the GOAT conversation of MJ and LeBron plus doing his Puma announcement. And players, if you noticed, he was doing that while in high school, are now going to be doing that either post high school if they can't go to the league, but in another one or two years, they will be able to go straight to the league so they won't have to go that route. So as you just mentioned about Jalen Green, he needed to go to the G League, create a G League team in California, where he's from, get a coach, Brian Shaw. Like it's so many things that had to happen in order for that to take place. When really, if it was up to him, he'd actually go from getting $400,000 in the G League to go getting $30 million in the NBA because he's going to be a top three pick. And so LaMelo and his family, I have always applauded their approach. I really did. As being a member of the Fab Five and saw how much money Nike made off of, if I got a dollar every time somebody bought some black socks, 
Like they, the mall didn't even sell black socks. Like I know. Put them on like, right now. Right for for some people, I know you look at an iPhone and not realize that beepers existed, but they did. Like there, there was a time when you could go to the mall and they only had like one or two pairs of black socks. The first year I was wearing dress socks. They weren't even uh, sweat socks. They were dress socks on top of my white socks. So the players should be able to share in that. Absolutely. Jalen, we're coming off this incredible Lakers win. And full disclosure, I am a lifelong Lakers fan, but was never a LeBron fan. I was Kobe, MJ, and Magic. Those were my, those were my guys. And I played with Kobe in high school in a bunch of summer leagues. When LeBron came to the Lakers, I was like, eh, it's LeBron, not a fan. But after what he just did... He converted me because he honored Kobe and he honored all of us. What it made me think about was LeBron's brand. He's always been one of the most polarizing athletes on the planet, especially from the decision on. What do you think this does for his business brand and his marketing brand? A few things as I rock my more than a vote shirt and rep to the fullest. Because LeBron James stands on the shoulders of the grace that I'm pictured, that, that I'm sitting in front of. Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, athletes that were socially and politically conscious and were willing to speak, use their voice and their platform in order to um, try to get their humanity. And so the championship that he just got, a, got accomplished was a duality for me. I think He's the goat. He's in the goat conversation in two different things that matter to me the most. Muhammad Ali to me is the all, my all-time favorite. He just is. He's he's the goat. Period. So LeBron's in the conversation with those guys of social and political justice. The gentleman I just mentioned, and then he in the goat conversation of Michael Jordan, of players of all time. So. He's the modern day version of these guys. But when we talking about who's the best basketball player of all time, he got more work to do to pass Michael Jordan. And I'm gonna give you five categories to always look at that you can do cross era comparisons to get you really close to figuring out who the GOAT is, especially in the, in the statistical era. It's MVP. That means you've been the best player in the game. So Anthony Davis is all NBA. Giannis is back-to-back -back MVP. It's just, a, it's just a different level of a player. It just is. There's championship. You just saw LeBron do that. There's finals MVP. There's defensive player of the year. Means you're the best defensive player of the year. And then there's scoring titles. Because that means you can get buckets. And that's the hardest thing to do in basketball, to get buckets. I know when you play, you play. You saw me you play with Kobe. I heard you. I heard you. And I know folks like, it. oh, the hardest thing to do is to sacrifice your body and take a charge. No, 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 that's not, that's easy. That's easy. You're going to pull somebody out of the car in the corner of the light and do that. The hardest thing at the end of game five is to go get me a bucket when I need one. That's the hardest thing to ever do in basketball. So those are the categories. And I think I said four or five. MVP, finals MVP, title, defensive player of the year, and scoring title. Michael Jordan got 10 scoring titles. And in six of those years, his team won the championship. Now, just think about this. Imagine if James Harden led the league in scoring six times. And each year, the Rockets won the championship. People will be calling him the greatest offensive player of all time. 
Oh wait, some people are. So wait, so some people are. Like they oh that's right. They 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 haven't probably seen Michael Jordan play though. That that that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Okay. Michael Jordan won six championships. How many times did he win? How many three-peats did he have? Oh, two. Two separate three-peats. Who else has had multiple three-peats? No one. No one. Right? No, nobody. I played against Shaq and Kobe. They would have stayed together after their three-peat. They had a chance to do it again. LeBron would have stayed in Miami and they would have stayed healthy. They had a chance to do it. KD with the Warriors, they have a chance to do it. But isn't it a kind of a nod to LeBron that, you know, he's doing it with multiple franchises? Like, you can win six if the, if the NBA looks pretty much exactly the same all six years, you know? When people are, you know, joining, you know, you got KD moving around. When people are joining to take down these people after just an inkling of success, and you do it with three different franchises, four titles, there's something to, you keep moving the goalposts here, you know? No, 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 no. We're not going to allow you to do that. No, I didn't move the goalposts. I set the goalposts with Michael Jordan. I set my standard. My yeah, standard. You also is, said that Kareem, Russell, and Magic just a couple months ago, Jalen. That's said in my Kareem. top five. They're in my top five. But you also said LeBron needed to leapfrog them. This was before he got the title. Correct. So my my top players in this order are Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, and then LeBron. I said when he went his fourth, he could pass Magic. And that hurt me to say because Magic is my childhood idol. And so I'm not just doing this based on who got the most rings. Like, I'm serious about this. My father was a former player. I remember being watching the 1972 All-Star game. I've seen that footage more than anybody walking the face of the earth, okay, because I never met my biological father. That was the closest I got. I watched that all of the time. And so you can give extra credit for doing it for more than one team, or you can say, imagine if he would have been able to do it in Cleveland the whole time. And you'd have to live in Cleveland. But that's where he grew up. See, see, that's moving the goalposts. You see what I mean? Like, oh, he lived in Cleveland. Well, he 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 had he had fun living there when he went back to win it. Now that was an amazing I mean. championship. That was that was outstanding. And again, not taking nothing away from the king. He just got more work to do, y'all. I ain't mad. I ain't hating. I'm riding with him. That's my dude. I ain't salty about my life. I'm crisp. I got a black card. I'm good. I'm just telling you, he got more work to do. That's it. Six championships, six finals MVPs, 10 scoring, ten scoring titles? 10? 10? Like, like, like he, just got, he just got a little more work to do. He got AD on his squad. I think he has the chance to do that. Now, if we compare him in his prime to MJ in his prime off the court, then he the go. You brought up your dad, Jalen, and I'm the product of, uh, divorced parents when I was young and not having my dad around all the time we weren't particularly close it actually drove me to be more successful I want to ask you about even though your father was a ball player but not having him around what type of influence did that have on you psychologically growing up as a player and then post playing career I don't want to promote a broken home in any way shape or form 
because that emotionally and psychologically has done things to you and to me and to everybody else that we just couldn't imagine. And so what I will say, however, is one of my main motivations was to A, take us out of the um, poor situation we were in in Detroit where I was, uh, you know, eating syrup sandwiches and mayonnaise sandwiches and drinking sugar water and sugar milk. I was like, okay, maybe I'm here because he left. He was in the league and I'm in the hood and we don't have heat. I'm like, all right, he gonna know my name one day. So he became my encouragement. In, in high school, my number was 42 because I wanted to get the opposite number that he had, 24. I was like, I'm every person that he'll never be and I'm opposite of him. He gonna know me. And that did help me go harder on drills and catch the bus to practice and run to the gym with ankle weights on and, you know, play all day in the, in, in the sun and shovel off the court in the winter and my nose be running. I got science, sinuses to this day. Absolutely. That was motivation. Out there with gym shoes on when everybody else got boots. No doubt. No question. I wouldn't have been as hungry spoon fed. I would not have been as hungry. After you made it in, in you know, you're, you have more money than God. Was there any ever a moment where, you know, I know we passed, I think in 2007, but was there ever a moment where you were like, Hey, let me, let me bury the hatchet with him and maybe we can move forward. Oh, quick, fast and in a hurry. I did it in the early 2000s. He wrote me a letter when I was in college, early nineties. Uh, Mitch Alvin was trying to interview him for the Fab Five book. And he wrote me a letter, gave it to Mitch. And Mitch gave it to me the night before the Final Four game, actually. As I look back at that story, I'm like, I kind of wish he would have waited till after the Final Four to give me this letter. But sorry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, wow. And so um, I actually kept the letter. And uh, it, it was like kind of like Linus in his blanket. I just kept it with me everywhere I went but didn't open it for years. And then I was a member of the Pacers and I felt like I established myself in the league and I knew who I was somewhat as a young adult. And uh, I opened a letter. I remember I was at Dale Davis's house. We, they were over there playing poker. I don't play poker, but for some reason I spent hours of my life watching it. And uh, I went in the bathroom and I, I just called him. Two or three, you know, locales later and connect me with that person who connect me with that person, connect me with that person. And then I eventually got him on the phone. And uh, Austin Crozier actually helped me get the, the one of those numbers because he went to Providence and they had the same athletic director. I called and got him on the phone. I just told him I love him. I told him I had no hard feelings. And I kind of said what you just alluded to by asking the question. Whatever journey um, was meant for me clearly was ordained for you not to be a part of, you know, my day to day because it didn't stop me from my goals. I have two brothers, rest in peace to my oldest brother who I lost within the last eight months, William Rose. I have two older brothers and an older sister and they have a different father and they're clearly not the athlete that I was. And so I wanted to give him credit for that and my genes and having me fall in love with the game of basketball. And that's why when he passed in 2007, I was at the funeral with his Hall of Fame teammate and my godfather, Dave Bean. 
Jalen, we're in a period right now of player empowerment off the court, unlike anything we've ever seen. You've got a management and production company. You've got a successful podcast. You look at LeBron, KD, Steph Curry. Everybody's producing everything on the planet right now. For you, when did you realize in your career that the best part of it was behind me and I've got to start thinking to the next step? And then the follow-up to that is, once you realize that, how do you identify what that next step is going to look like and where you can transition into? See, the one thing about growing up in the hood is uh, you can take the lessons and apply them or you can fight them. And there's certain, there's certain things that teach you who you are and you have, to, you have to own it. Like most people, when you look at them or you get introduced to them, you meet their representative. You know, and that's who they see when they look in the mirror. They're representative. They're not, they're not honestly assessing themselves. Being poor makes you honestly assess yourself because somebody's telling you, nah, 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 you broke. And you want to be mad or fight it, but it's actually true. You know what I'm saying? And you can't do nothing about it. So it's, it's that duality. You can't do anything about it, and it's true. And so... When you grow up poor, like I said, it's people start to tell you things. And if they're true, you got to learn to deal with it. And then the other part of that is, even if you don't like it, you can't whoop the person that said it, right? You can't fight the person that said, you know, you've got been at the park. You want to jump up in such and such and such and such face, but you ain't going to jump up in such and such face because he's going to go pop the trunk, right? So I learned to assess myself like really early. And my goal all the, my whole life in basketball, you couldn't tell me, for anybody that's ever watched Kobe obsess over Michael Jordan, the late, great Kobe Bean Bryant, who I love dearly, that's how I obsess with Magic Johnson. That's how I obsess with Magic Johnson. You could not tell me I wasn't Magic Johnson. You could not. I don't care if I was in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You could not tell me. I didn't realize I wasn't Magic Johnson until I got to college, right? Now think about it, I'm a member of the Fab Five. I'm still a 6'8 point guard out here killing them. People naming their kids Jalen. Leading scorer. Right? But I'm like, when Magic was a freshman, when Magic was a sophomore, that was who I was comparing myself to. I was like, let me temper it down a little bit. And then I started looking around start playing against these dudes, I'm like, I'm not as good as Chris Webber. I'm not as good as Grant Hill. This dude is great. I haven't played against this dude since I was 13. Like this, this dude, like I, I got a chance to see all of these dudes so young. I got a chance to see the big dog, Glenn Robinson, so young, Jamal Mashburn. Like these dudes to me, like I'm a fan of the game. I got, when I saw Penny, I was like, I ain't magic. That's magic. That's magic. I thought I, that's magic. Sorry, Jalen, you ain't magic. I started calling him magic and stopped calling myself magic when I saw him. And this is when I, this is before I was even in the league. I was still balling in college. I was a lottery pick, all of that. And so I was like, I need to start taking these communications classes serious. You know what I'm saying? Because these dudes is really good. And I don't know if, you know, 
if this is the barometer of the league, I don't know how, I'm a, how long I'm going to last. And so I started taking those communications, radio, TV, film, production classes, and I started earning my chops. And so I played in the finals in 2000, and then I covered the finals in 2002 when it was Lakers and Nets for BET Mad Sports. I pitched them the idea. They liked it. They ran it. I got all access. Was interviewing Shaq, was interviewing Kobe, was interviewing Phil. Pitched the idea, the best damn sports show the next year. So from 2002 to 2007, I'm averaging 20 in the league while working in the media. I was doing it both at the exact same time. Top-ranked boxing, NFL Network, cold pizza. Before I became first take, I was doing sideline for TNT and studio for TNT. Nick Van Exel threw the towel on me. I'm doing baseline. Sacramento Kings, how about that? They were in the playoffs. And, and the Spurs. That's how long ago this was. So in 2007, that's when I started doing it full time. Now, I'm, a, I'm a Boston guy, so Larry Bird is near and dear to my heart. I know you, you flourished as a player in Indiana with him as a coach. I think three straight conference finals there. What does Larry mean to you, and what kind of guy is he in general? First, for you youngsters out there, like, let me school y'all something. Larry Bird, one of the top 10 basketball players of all time. And I'm tired of looking down at my phone and people are like, oh, look who he was playing against. He was playing against truck drivers. And he was like, like just so y'all know, and, and this is as somebody who was born in 73, okay? And I'm analyzing the game in 2020. I know how this works. I got y'all. I know Imani Bates is coming. And I know in 15 years, they're going to be saying my nephew is better than Kevin Durant. I know it. I know, I know how this works. Everybody wants their era to be the best player have the best music, have the best movie. I know the technology, you look back at the movies, oh, look at the technology in that movie, it looks terrible. So Larry, when people look at his highlights, for some reason they like, oh, first off, he's six foot 10. Shoot with unlimited range. Grab every rebound, 10 plus rebounds. A terrific passer, five plus dimes. And was clutch. Larry Bird was clutch. You go into the huddle, when you watching the game, when you was watching the game the other day, be honest, game five, because I did it. I was with Jay Will, I was with Paul Pierce, with Maria Taylor. When the Lakers came out of the huddle, I looked to my teammates. I said, who taking this shot? When y'all was watching the game, what did y'all say? Got to be LeBron every time. Correct. So how did you feel when he didn't take the shot? I felt cheated. I mean, that's LeBron, though. He's, he's not built like Kobe or MJ. He doesn't necessarily want the last shot as much as he sees the game differently, which I'm not necessarily a huge fan of. I love the guys who want the last shot. That's what made MJ to me so special and Kobe. But you're right. LeBron is built differently. I love joining you guys because you just, both of you guys, just basically gave the same answer that I have. LeBron, Magic, and Bird make the basketball play. Tim Duncan, too. They make the basketball play. So when I do the five categories, Tim Duncan, he ain't trying to lead the league in nothing. Because some nights, they're going to be up 20, and he ain't going to even play second half. He's just trying to win the game. Larry Magic, they're just trying to win the game. And then every now and then, oh, Kareem guarded? I think so. Oh, baby hook in the middle. I'm going to show this, right? When I'm watching the Celtics play, I'm a Pistons fan. Oh, Bird steals the ball underneath the DJ. 
That's ringing in my ears. I rooted against Larry his whole life, his whole career. I rooted against Jordan his whole career. You know, I'm bad boys forever. I cheered when we walked off and didn't shake the Bulls' hand. All of Detroit walked off. Trust me. It wasn't just those 15 people in uniform. It was not just them. We was on their back or vice versa, however you want to put it. And so Larry, for that era, he won three straight MVPs. Magic was in the league. Jordan was in the league. He won three straight MVPs. I think the 86 or 87 team was probably the greatest team ever assembled. Don't tell Bill Simmons I said that. I got to know, toughest cover of your career. I got to say Kobe, because I was out there and watched that 81 up close and personal. And I want to pay homage to the legend and uphold his legacy and celebrate the fact that I got a chance to see greatness and get teased about it and get a chance to talk about it. And when his name comes up, at some point, five words later, my name is going to come up. And I appreciate everything that he was able to accomplish on this earth. And so probably that. What do you think about Tyler Hero? Because this kid, he's got whatever that it quality is on and off the court, he has it. What are your thoughts about where he goes next? So the one thing he has that allows it to be it is the Miami Heat culture. See, a lot of what happens to a young player is where they get picked. So if I'm watching NFL on Sundays, I kind of don't know how good Dwayne Haskins can be in the NFL. Why? Because he got drafted to a bad situation. Right? He got, he got, I saw him at Ohio State. And, you know, I'm Michigan. But I, you know what? Every time I looked up at TV, at the TV, he's throwing another touchdown. I'm like, yo, the Lions need to get him. Right? That, I'm, like, I'm like, he looks good. Like, I haven't even, what, what has he started? Like, two games? One game? Like, they have, I, He's had more coaches than he started games. Yeah. Like, like, I saw his old coach sitting on the curb. I saw those photos. Like, they haven't given him a chance to really flourish. Mm -hmm. So Tyler Hero now comes to the NBA. He has the skill. He has the bravado. Then he has Coach Cal. Then he has Coach Spock. And so now he gets a chance to ease himself into his career. It's not like the first game, Tyler Hero, he's our guy, did a couple of shots, he got a heat check in a couple of quarters, and now he got to be the leading scorer. And after the game, everybody coming to him in the, in the locker room first. No, it's like, you're going to talk to Pat, you're going to talk to Spo, you're going to talk to Jimmy, you're going to talk to Bam, you're going to talk to Goran, you're going to talk to Alonzo. Like, we're going to protect this kid. You see what I'm saying? He working on his game. And so now that gives him confidence. Like, dang, they trust me. All right. Y'all going to run the scissor action for me late to shoot a three? With 25 seconds to go, Jimmy, you cool with that? Y'all cool? Me? He like, cool. Because they saw him in the gym putting in work. And so now the sacrifice, the culture and the sacrifice that he made with his game and the coaching that he's accepted now flourishes in the team dynamic where they use him to his strength. So you don't see him out there playing the top of the 2-3 zone. Why? Because defense ain't his strength. So we're going to put him in the back. Him, Goran Dragic, um, Duncan Robinson, we're going to put them in the back of the zone. But guess what? We're going to put them in the front of this three-point line. You see what I mean? That, that's, that's protecting him and allowing him to flourish. 
And then when he get hot, how about this guy, what, he 38, 39 points? As a rookie, 20 years old in the finals? Like, I'm not, I'm not even proud of the things I was doing at 20. For him, the worst thing, like, like on our show, I'm like, if I was 20 and I was him playing in Miami and in the finals, oh, man, everybody's DMs would be wide open, wide open. Jalen, I got to bring up one of my uh, favorite Jalen Rose moments, and I know I can speak for a, a bunch of people on this one. It was in 2012 when Skip Bayless was kind of pumping out his chest at you about some just bad Russell Westbrook take, and you called him out for playing JV as a junior and averaging 1.4 points a game, and you could just see his entire on-camera persona just just kind of evaporate, and he was just this wounded puppy. I mean, eight years later, is that uh, is that hatchet buried? The hatchet is buried, and I brought I bought Skip some nice designer shoes in like 2015 to hopefully help bury it because what I learned about um, delivering a message, and this is for a lot of people that call themselves leaders or bosses or big brothers or father figures, you can give whatever message you want to give, but if it's not received by the human being you was trying to deliver, then it, it becomes a miss. And so... I wouldn't have said what I said if I thought it was going to make him feel the way I saw it made him feel. What ends up happening, however, when you're doing a debate, it's almost like slap boxing. Eventually, every now and then, so you're going to hit him harder and he'll hit you harder and all of a sudden y'all fighting. And so what ended up happening in that moment was two professionals with a healthy respect for one another, both you know, tirelessly working at their crafts and getting research and trying to have the next fact on the next fact of the next fact. What he didn't know is that I'm also a hip hop fan and I love Karis One. And something that he said always stuck with me was that he kept a freestyle for everybody in the top 10 in case somebody came at him. And so I was like, all right, maybe if I'm going on a debate show, maybe I should adopt that and by the way, I know I'm giving people out there game to do this for me. You know, I'm the OG now. It's fine. Y'all can have it now. You know, you can have it. I'm 18 years in. You know, like when they say people get old, they just start just saying stuff. Like, I I'm giving it to y'all. My careless one gave it to me. And so for somebody that plays in the 60s and the 70s, they clearly don't feel like somebody has a record or acknowledgement of the stats of when they played. So... I'm one of the people that was doing that digging and doing that research for weeks, actually. And I came across Black Sports Online at the time, Robert Lethal, big shout to him, and saw that they had some stuff about Skip's playing career. And I coupled that with a few other things that I Googled and piecemealed it all together because it was not all together. And then I was sitting on it. So I actually was sitting on it for weeks. Like, it wasn't something that just, like, I, I didn't wake up that morning. If I would have known it was going to go like quote unquote viral and it was going to be something that people be talking about so, so many years later, I would have wore a better suit that day. Like I didn't, I, I didn't even know it was going to happen that day. And so again, this is healthy banter. It's a debate show. It's a debate show. We're slap boxing. As we're talking about the game and I'm trying to tell him that positions were created so a novice can follow the game. Like just because you're, a power forward don't mean you bulky or just because you're a shooting guard, that don't mean you firing up threes from wherever. Like, that's just, just so people can acknowledge who's out there. It's really for the fans. 
And then he was like, so what type of player were you? And I was like, whoa. I was like, whoa. You know what I'm saying? And, and then, and so that, that's, that's what triggered the response that I had. But uh, he's still doing, a, you know, his thing at uh, another network. Big shout to um, Shannon Sharp. That's my OG. That's my brother. I actually got drafted by the Nuggets while he was a member of the Broncos. So I've known him that long, worked directly and indirectly with him at ESPN and saw him continue to ascend and do his thing. So I'm happy they got their show together. But uh, that's just a moment and a day in the life of the hustling, hustling, hu- hustling. I saw this great story that when you were a rookie, Dikembe Mutombo had you fetching condoms to haze you at CVS Pharmacy. You got to walk me through this. What's going through your head? See, the one thing about these stories is, Deke, you know I love you. He did a terrific job philanthropically. I donated to the hospital that he helped build in his hometown as well is that now these people have moved on, man. They got wives, they got kids, man. They don't want them hearing about these stories. But this, this happened before Google. This happened before YouTube and social media. How you know about this? That's why it should be free, public free reign there. It's <laughs> another life. All right, Deke, they're asking me, Deke. They're asking me. They're asking me, big fella. We'll find out. Otherwise, you know, I would. I would. They're asking, big fella. All right, Jalen, we're going to get you out of here on this. We're going to do what we like to call a hustle round. I'm going to give you a rapid-fire series of two opposing things, and you have to answer which one you prefer. You cannot take longer than three seconds, or it's bad luck for seven years. I don't make the rules. You ready? All right, let's get it. Let's get it. All right, brighter future, Luca Donkic or Jason Tatum? Luca. Better fast food, Wendy's or Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A. Steam room or sauna? Steam room. Lake or ocean? With vapors in that steam room. If I could see the bottom, so I guess that's uh, lake. <laughs> Better basketball movie, Space Jam or He Got Game? He Got Game. Better basketball documentary, The Last Dance or Hoop Dreams? Wow, classics. <laughs> Three seconds, Jalen. Hoop Dreams. <laughs> Better five, Fab Five or Jackson Five? Jackson Five. I idolized them. I got them up in the studio. Jackson Five. Better pizza in New York or Chicago? Ooh, I played both places. <laughs> Detroit pizza, Populous, seafood. Come on, huh? You have to answer one or the other, dude. You're going to get bad luck. New York. Better actor, Denzel in Training Day or Paul Pierce in the wheelchair game? <laughs> I only say this because I, I die for Paul. Truth. Happy birthday, Paul. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday. Love you, dog. Denzel, that's my uncle. Denzel all day. And I'm glad Denzel and his Lakers got a championship this year. He's been paying for season tickets forever. And imagine, imagine being treated the way Spike Lee was treated by the Knicks. As I see Denzel get his, and his Lakers get a championship. Imagine the New York Knickerbockers were ever to get a championship. Spike Lee should get two rings. And they ushered him out of the arena. Oh, my goodness. Big spoon or little spoon, Jalen? Little spoon. Ranch or blue cheese? Ranch. Doritos or Cheetos? Doritos, but I like to crunch them and mix them in the same bag. Last one, better Detroit artist, Eminem or Stevie Wonder? Oh, Stevie Wonder. You have survived the hustle round. And you know, I only joke about Pierce because he's the most underrated player in history. 
Jalen, you were fantastic, man. Thank you for a wonderful interview. That was awesome. Yeah. Don't forget to tune into Jalen's podcast, Jalen and Jacoby and the Renaissance Man with Big Sean. Read his column in the New York Post and tell him to slow down a bit, please. <laughs> All right. And that was Jalen Rose. Arthur, you knew that interview was going to be a wild ride when he kicks it off with his car getting shot up, huh? I mean, anytime you're kicking off an interview with an attempt at carjacking, the train's on the tracks and we're rolling hard. So, yeah, he was awesome. I felt like we got taken to the church of basketball. So couldn't have asked for anything more from that, dude. I hope we can have him on the show again soon. Yeah, I mean, for those at home, you didn't see his publicist had to come in and grab him. He was just he was so generous with his time. And I have become even bigger Jalen Rose fan myself. All right, before we start up with this Scott Dixon interview, Arthur, I want to talk to you about something that's popping off in the sports business world. I know we're relics of an older generation here, so it may take two of us to unpack this esports phenomenon uh, that just got a huge boost with Juju Smith-Schuster launching his own gaming organization, Team Diverge. It is the world's first athlete-led gaming entertainment and lifestyle company. It will aim to, quote, live at the intersection of sports, gaming, culture, cultivating creative content and unique fan experiences. Of course, two years ago, Juju signed a six-figure deal with Hypex, which creates headsets, keyboards, and hard drives. Arthur, school me on this esports industry, please. So here's what's funny. I didn't realize until last year how big esports was amongst athletes. I'm a huge fan of the show Ballers. And they literally did a whole story arc around one of the players on the show owning an esports team. And I was like, why the fuck are they devoting so much time to this? And then we ended up for one of my other shows with the NHL having Rick Fox in studio, who also is a partner in an esports team. And he really educated me on this is the next big business. And athletes are all trying to get in on it. The other thing that I forgot. As a young man myself, I loved video games. So when we're looking at these athletes like Juju, these guys are in their early to mid-20s. They're freaking playing video games. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially now taking their hobby, transferring it into a major business, plugging themselves into a multi-billion dollar empire, and using their brands to promote whatever their team is like Juju. What I really find fascinating with Juju is, and what I've learned is, in esports, there are like these major teams. Like you have like the Cowboys of esports and like the Giants of esports. I mean, these guys and girls have franchises. Juju is going at it himself and creating his own team, which is A, risky, but also B, pretty cool because if it works out, dude's going to make a ton of money. But here's my thing, Matt. Would you expect anything less from a guy named Juju? I mean, I feel like Juju is meant to be an esports owner. This is so prototypical Juju, and Juju is a great word to say. But excuse me for sounding like uh, an old man who yells at the cloud here. But, you know, esports just passed a billion dollars in revenue this year. It reaches over a half billion people worldwide. You know, they got Ninja, that Twitch streamer, is worth $50 million, which is Troy Aikman-level money. It's not going anywhere. I know that. But aren't we being a, a little liberal with the term sports when you're playing video games? These kids nowadays, 
these kids nowadays because sound like my dad. You know what I love is you're still a kid yourself, dude. I'm the old man here. I'll tell you what, Arthur. I feel older and older every day. The, <laughs> these kids nowadays, their idea of fun isn't playing with toys. It's watching kids play with toys on YouTube. I'll tell you what. If I told my lady and I said, hey, you, you know, you mind if I go over the guy's place for the game? And she goes, she says to me, well, well who's playing? What game? You know, the Patriots playing? And I say, no, uh, video games. She goes, oh, well, are you playing video games? No, I'm watching a stranger play video games on TV. How ludicrous does that sound? Where are we going as a society when we allow this to take over? And not to mention, the NFL has put multi-million dollars into the Play 60 campaign, which tells kids to get outside, get dirty, go play Manhunt or something, scrape up your knees. But Juju is out here saying, hey, Sit, sit back, relax, and play. sit in a dark room and play video games. I'm just saying I would do the same thing if I were him, but we got we to gotta know where this is going as a society. This is the next step of player empowerment now. This is the next business. So I feel like in the 80s, it was like, let me go own a McDonald's. Then in the 90s, it was the sneaker revolution. Then in the 2000s, we saw Silicon Valley and players beginning to put their hands into that. Esports is now this decade's every player needs to get involved. This is the hot thing. Let's throw our money and our name behind it. And, you know, when you see these video game companies now worth tens and hundreds of billions of dollars or projected to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars, they are getting in on the ground floor. And guys like Juju, if this bet pays off, he might end up making more money as an esports owner than probably the 80 or 100 million he's going to make as an NFL wide receiver. It's just, it's an incredible trend. And it really is the ground floor for investments for players right now. It's going to be fascinating for both of us to watch. 100%. I think it is going to pay off, which I think is good for him and sad for society. Which my opinion here, Arthur. We can agree to disagree. Listen, it's, we played video games. I grew up on Activision, Atari, Sega Genesis, Nintendo 64. This is just their generation's version. God, I just dated myself. But hey, listen, God bless them. Hopefully they can spread some of the money. And if we ever run into Juju in a club, maybe throws us you know, a bottle of Dom or Rosé or something. Yeah. Speaking of which, another guy who's doing pretty good in the competition area, Mr. Scott Dixon's our next interview, five-time IndyCar champ. I could have listened to his accent all day. What an interview, Matt. Yeah, he was great. And as, as a guy who appreciates a sport but isn't a diehard fan, I was a little nervous that, like, I was like, how much can I talk to him about? But you realize after you interview a lot of these top athletes and these champions that there is that common thread, that they just have a mindset and kind of discipline and uh, a way about them that you can really learn anything from them, even if you don't know the intricacies of the sport itself. Yeah, and what I loved about Scott in this interview is we were able to get into so much pop culture with him, whether it's how Tom Cruise would do in an Indy car, the Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin merger. I mean, we, we really covered a lot of ground. So everybody enjoy the king of Indy car, Scott Dixon. All right, all right, all right. Today on The Endless Hustle, we welcome on Scott Dixon, five-time IndyCar champion, five-time ESPY nominee for Best Driver, Indy 500 winner, and also British royalty, believe it or not. Scott was honored by Queen Elizabeth II on the 66th anniversary of her coronation as Queen of the United Kingdom. Do we have to call you Sir Dixon for this interview, or is Scott cool? 
Scott's perfectly uh, okay. I think I'm like right under the 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 sir part. I think next is knighthood, so I'm not quite there on that list. But um, the only reason we agreed to do this interview is because we thought you were sir. Now you know if you're not. Oh, sorry, man. Sorry. <laughs> Should we just end it now? <laughs> All right, Scott. I want to start off from the very beginning for a guy like me who's like an outsider to the sport. It seems like there is like a huge barrier to entry for racing. There's that old story of Andre Agassi's dad attaching tennis balls to a mobile above his crib so he can smack them. But as a young kid, you can't just hop into your mom's Honda and take it for a spin. When and how do you first gain the skill set that plant the seed to become a successful driver? That's a tough one. I would say that it's definitely, you know, you need, you need family uh, you know, it's not like it's not like going to school and playing tennis. You know, in, in Agassi's situation, you know, it's it's not like they're going to have a go kart or something there that you can jump into. So you need, you know, you, you need a mum or dad that's going to buy you a, uh, you know, a thousand dollar or more go kart. And and for me, it was uh, my dad was into racing. My mum a little bit too. They owned a track actually in Townsville, uh, in in uh, Australia. And my earliest memories were actually starting on a motorbike and, and you know, uh, on dirt track stuff. And, and then it was uh, watching my cousins race go-karts at the age of seven. Uh, and at the end of the day, they had this like portion where you could, you know, anybody that came could have a go. And, and that's what I did. And, and then I was just relentless, you know, every, every day continuously, can I get a go-kart? Can I get a go-kart? Two weeks later, I uh, ended up doing it. And, and, and I think that's where I, you know, kind of learned you know, the majority of, of um, you know, at least early stuff of, of you know, what you need to do and, and you know, progresses quite quickly uh, in the lower categories and in go-karting. And then you move on to formula cars, which, you know, I think I was the youngest in the world at that stage at the age of 13. And we kind of got through a bit of a loophole uh, to, to try and pull that off in, in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a progressional thing. But my dad was, you know, uh, he raced many things from rally cars to dirt cars to, you know, uh, permanent track stuff. And, and you know, he was uh, a big part of, you know, my early learning and, and, you know, understanding the sport. So obviously, Matt read off your statistics and you're probably the most successful current living driver in the sport. We know what you've done on the racetrack. I want to talk to you about what you're doing off the racetrack because a big part of this podcast and a big part of what we want to explore is how athletes are building their brand outside of the sport. What are you doing now? And when did you start doing and understanding that, hey, racing is not forever. I need to start thinking about the world outside of this and start really taking those steps. And what are those steps? Uh, I think everybody's different. You know, uh, there's some people I'm, I'm pretty, uh, like kind of reclusive, I guess. And, and not sort of, I, I'm not a big promoter of myself. It's kind of weird. Like I, I like to let my results speak for themselves. And, you know, uh, I think you do learn at a, at a portion, you know, for me, um, probably, you know, five years ago that, that it, it, it becomes much more important. And yes, you're right. You know, I think with, uh, with a with a any professional sport, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty small window, uh, and your avenues kind of outside of it, you know, and are similar to maybe football or, or anything like that, where you become into you know drive a coach or you know work with a team and management to you know maybe even being an agent for you know young and up and comers. So, you know, I think uh, for me, it's still you know it's been really about the focus of, of what I've got here because it's such a short window. You know, I don't really want to have too many things that sway you off in different directions. You know, the the, the the point for me right now and we are behind you know you got to strike while the iron's hot but in this situation too with you know five championships going for a sixth you start to have these amazing partners you know and for me it's you know it's been honda uh throughout many of my years of racing uh richard millet you know watch companies um you know to the team and who they have you know pnc bank and you know 
these are things that you, you people that you you start to work with and and you know kind of morph into obviously uh, their social media stuff as well um, that fits well. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is is not saturating with content. It's got to be it's got to be good and meaningful content, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I'm probably more on the light side of not doing enough of it. Uh, but when I do, I try to make sure that it's, it's meaningful and something that, uh, you know, will work for, for both parties and, and, you know, kind of intrigue others that want to, you know, get into maybe that area as well. I must have watched your crash from the 2017 Indy 500 about 10 times last night, and I'm still trying to figure out how you walked away from it. And not only that, I watched an interview right after, and you gave it like you just got an offender bender. It was amazing. <laughs> you truly were the Iceman. How vividly do you remember that incident? And is that something that happened in a blink of an eye, or does time kind of stop? Yeah, so that, that incident was was pretty unique. I think the ones that stick with drivers are at least, you know, the, the, the mindset are the ones where you lose control of the car by something you've done. You know, that was just wrong place, wrong time. You know, there was no real way of avoiding it unless you kind of got lucky and, and I didn't get lucky. I got lucky in the fact that, you know, the way I hit and flew through the air, uh, you know, it, you know, 230 miles an hour that, that luckily I kind of grazed a few spots, you know, had I got caught in the catch fence, you know, those things, uh, for our cars are kind of just like big cheese graters and that, that would have been really bad. So, um, you know, I think for me, uh, I remember, I remember coming to a rest and looking up and seeing half the car, like, you know, in front of me and I'm like, man, I hope that person's okay. And then, and then I stepped out of my car and I'm like, wow, that was actually my car. That, that's half of the car that's missing. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, I think you're still in a lot of shock at those points. Um, you know, the adrenaline, adrenaline is amazing thing, man. Like I felt when I popped into that car, I'm like, you know, you feel like King Kong, you know, I didn't feel too yeah. bad. You walk away. Uh, and then I remember actually sitting at the motorhome after I was like, I actually sat back and, and watched the rest of the race having a, a cold beer. I'm like, man, my foot's really starting to hurt. And, you know, you look down and it's kind of blown up and I'd actually fractured my ankle, which was, you know, uh, pretty crazy considering the, the, you know, the size of the crash. Um, but yeah, that one, um, you don't really, we were also shooting a, a, a film at the time uh, called Born Racer, uh, which was, you know, kind of a little bit about my career and, and you know, IndyCar as a whole. So that crash I've seen so many times, man, you know, the, the current the edits that they were sending through to, you know, the different views from people's, you know, personal camera footage uh, was, was insane. So yeah, I've definitely, and I think it was kind of one of the part of the promo, uh, uh, you know, uh, stuff for IndyCar at that stage as well. So it was just, it was pumped everywhere. So luckily now they've actually slowed down on showing that, but uh, it was, it was definitely impressive and, and very lucky and a, a testament to the safety of uh, you know, the IndyCar series. So Matt mentioned your nickname being the Iceman, but you're probably the second most famous Iceman in the world because the most famous is, of course, Val Kilmer from Top Gun. They're making a second one now. And that makes me think about Tom Cruise. He obviously did Days of Thunder, but he's probably the biggest adrenaline junkie and take-a-risk junkie in Hollywood. So if we threw you Tom Cruise for a day, how do you think he would do in an indie car? Would he be able to get up to top speed? Would he crash? What's your thoughts? So, yeah, I think, you know, he's a machine, man. And, and honestly, you know, uh, he hasn't aged a bit, uh, which, you know, is maybe is part of, of that, uh, the world that he's living in. But, you know, I think, uh, I think, you know, I saw something recently where he was, you know, planning to do all of his, you know, own stunts, which he has always. And then he's going into space, you know, for, for the next movie, you know, uh, it's, it's astonishing, but, you know, I think, um, I'm not sure if you guys know that, but I think through the, the Paul Newman years when they were very good friends, uh, 
Tom actually drove race cars uh, and did some, I think, uh, Trans Am racing. Um, not too many races, and and and, uh, but was was actually fairly good, you know, considering that he hadn't had a whole lot of background in it. But uh, no, I, I imagine he would knock it out of the park. He would look real good doing it as well. And and uh, it doesn't age, you know, of course. Exactly, and he, and he would he would uh, you know pack the stands, man. So I think that's a, that's a great idea. Let's get uh, Tom Cruise driving the IndyCar. I'm always fascinated by those the stunt drivers in like any of those Bond movies, the Fast and Furious movies. Is that job as hard as it looks, or is it a cakewalk for drivers like yourself? It's actually quite difficult. Um, I would say I'm I'm not particularly good at at uh, like drifting or uh, you know it, it's definitely a skill set that that is 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 very difficult. And and you do have a bit of a crossover with some. Uh, you know, drivers in junior categories that come from, you know, the, that movie portion of, of creating these movies and, and, you know, these chase scenes and things like that. And, and uh, I have actually a, the crew chief on, on uh, the number nine IndyCar that I drive is, is very good at that stuff. Like it's, it's astonishing to me when I sit in the passenger seat, I think I'm constantly going to be crashing, but he's totally under control. So it's something that, um, I would definitely have to work at, I think, to, to possibly pull it off. But for us, as soon as we get into your, like, maybe seven degrees, uh, the car loses a, a ton of downforce and wants to spin out. So, you know, we, 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 we're talking, like, you know, small amounts of, of sideways, uh, which doesn't look impressive compared to, to what they do. But, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. I think, I, yeah, I'd need some lessons on that stuff. Is there a movie for you, Scott? Like, I loved Ford versus Ferrari last year, and I thought they did an insane job of really showing the racing process. What movie do you think has captured what you guys do to the ultimate extreme? You know, Days of Thunder is, is a go-to for me. Uh, so is Talladega Nights. I think it's it's a really good uh, spin on, on NASCAR. And, and, and first, you're last, A baby. lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it is kind of true, man. So it's, uh, you know, I think you're you're definitely right. Ford versus Ferrari. And, and for me, um, you know, there was a, a lot of those stories that I didn't really know too much about, uh, even though, you know, I was very lucky to, to be a part of, of uh, the Ford program going back 50 years later uh, with Chip Ganassi Racing. And, and we, you know, I didn't, I was third in, in, in our car, uh, but our teammates went on to, to win 50 years later to the day, which was, was astonishing. And, and, you know, that's where I think the, 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 the site for the, the movie kind of came out of. Um, but it's funny, you know, the, the twists that they put on even what was somewhat reality and, and what wasn't, you know, having heard the stories after the film had been out and talking to a a lot of friends maybe of Ken Miles and, you know, how he was portrayed and it was a little bit different, but I think it, you know, the, the, the great thing that, that they've been doing lately is, is, you know, hitting the right milestones and, and the accuracies, but also putting a slight twist on it to, to make sure that the crowd and, and the people are really, uh, you know, ingrained into the movie. So yeah, that, that I think for, for a modern day version of that and what they did and what they were able to achieve with that movie is it's extremely tough, you know, for, for drivers and people that are maybe historians of, of those events, you know, you notice little things, you know, you'd be like, Oh, that's not the right car or that's not even that corner or that's not even that track. Or, you know, I think even there was a portion where they were doing uh, the Daytona 24 hour or something like that leading up to Lamar. And you're like, well, that's California Speedway and it's got safer barriers and safer barriers were never introduced into the 2000s, you know, so you, you, you pick things like that, you know, out of it. Uh, but that, that was a, a fantastic movie that, that was able to show you the history of it and what they did. 
and also make sure that that the the fans and, and people involved you know absolutely loved it and it was it was a great movie i'm going to take you guys to english class for this next one ernest hemingway once wrote auto racing bullfighting and mountain climbing are the only real sports all others are games scott many people don't view drivers as athletes in the traditional sense but you've had an impressive run on American Ninja Warrior and sports science did a segment <laughs> featuring willpower that demonstrated the insane reaction time speed necessary to succeed in racing. How much of racing can be attributed to a, to a physical skill set and how much is more mental endurance? Uh, it's, it's probably a pretty good mix, you know, depending on, on the circuit. And that's where, you know, the NTT IndyCar series is, is, you know, in my view, one of the toughest championships to win because you've got, you know, you've got so many different disciplines. You've got short track ovals, super speedways, you know, road courses, street courses, and no other championship does that. And to win the championship, you've got to be good at all of them. And, uh, they require very different skill sets. Uh, the ovals, you know, say the Indianapolis 500, which is still the largest, you know, single day sporting event in the world, uh, as far as attendance, um, it mentally is, is so draining, you know, for that three and a half four hour period, you know, you're racing against your fellow competitors, 32 others uh, at 230 plus miles an hour, inches apart, the consequences are extremely high, um, you know, and, and trying to judge, you know, those distances and, and everything going on is, is mentally draining. And then you go to where we kick off maybe the season each year at St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, which is a street course extremely physical it's very bumpy high g-forces you know up to five g's in the corners um your average heart rate depending on you know where you, you know who you are uh and how you're built you know is, is 160 to 180 for a two hour two and a half hour period so i think like any sport they've evolved so much in the areas that if you try to push the limits you know um i've worked with pit fit training here in indianapolis for almost 20 years and they keep pushing the boundaries, you know, first of all, it was kind of like, oh, if you ran a little bit or if you did some triathlons, you know, that would kind of help. And, and now it's kind of moved into a cross of, you know, um, all of the endurance stuff, uh, plus a program with, you know, extreme, uh, you know, lifting and, and, and you know, the, the reaction testing and protocols that we use. Um, so it, it does change a lot. So I train, you know, six days a week. Um, I would say four days of those are, are twice a day. So two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. For me, it's kind of a, something else I got sucked into too. You know, I, I love competition and, you know, so I do triathlons, half Ironmans and things like that as well. And, and it complements the sport quite well. So yeah, it's, it's a very physical sport because the cars just become faster and, you know, more difficult to drive. The competition is through the roof, you know, so it's just a, it's a constant evolution. If, and if you're not covering all the bases, you're not going to win. There was some pretty earth shattering news. Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin, Bubba Wallace have teamed up to form their own team in NASCAR. What are your thoughts, Scott, on the impact that's going to have on racing in general to see the goat of basketball and arguably the goat of sport and then two of the, the biggest names of their sport partnering up. Yeah, it's huge. You know, uh, I know, you know, Jordan's been a fan of, of motor racing for quite some time and, and obviously has been tight friends uh, with, with Denny uh, for, for many years. You know, I think even if you look at, you know, the, the outfit that Denny wears, it's a, it's a Jordan, you know, race suit. And you, I'm sure, I'm not sure he's wearing real Jordan shoes, but they've got a, you know, a Jordan on them. Um, but it, it's cool to see, I think, you know, even the strange year uh, with COVID um, and then, you know, uh, many other, you know, kind of news headlines, I think, throughout the year and, and you know, even Black Lives Matter and, and you know, just the, the different things that have come out of it 
have been really big and really life-changing and and for all of us are going to change you know life in a lot of ways which is fantastic because it's it's part of you know what what we're all you know need to need to be doing and and you know i think that just shows you know um it it, it took maybe a situation of this craziness of this year that you know, jordan's like yeah i want, I want to get into this deeper and i want to be part of it you know and what a great partnership with denny who's very good friends with you know uh baba wallace you know and and to, to you know all knit that together uh and then obviously the community of of you know what jordan's been involved with with basketball and you know uh, baseball and anything like that and the following that he has it's, it's huge for nascar but huge for you know motorsports in general yeah i think a few people were pretty shocked about how that came about and how quickly it actually tied together uh, but it started as a joke, didn't it? It started as like uh, fake news was circulating. And then I guess Denny texted or Michael texted him and was like, I guess we're doing this now. Yeah, yeah. Which the cool part with, with Jordan, though, was that he's like, I only want to do it if we're going to be able to win. Yeah. And which, oh, yeah. you know, that's that's big, man. Like, because a lot of people don't, you know, think that way and don't get involved, you know, for that reason. You know, it could be, you know, political, whether it's, you know, sponsors or anything like that but you know that that shows just you know who that person is and how he's been so great and you know they're going to be super successful man so it's it's great to see is there any celebrity or public figure who you would be be your like white whale to team up with oh um so i think it's kind of happening you know i know it comes from from a similar was well, you know it's from motor racing but you know uh jimmy johnson you know seven time uh nascar champion is is uh hoping to join our team uh in indycar next year so he's, he's making a, a, a big shift and in, in a discipline that he hasn't been a part of but you know uh, I've, I've always been a, a massive fan of, of jimmy's we're actually you know pretty good friends we, we chat you know every week um, but to see, you know, someone that has achieved so much and, you know, in some ways getting on a little bit for, for motor racing, you know, he's maybe what 45 or something, um, to still have this drive and, and the guy is relentless, man. Like it, it'll be five in the morning and I'll wake up and I'll be like, see all these messages from Jimmy Johnson saying, well, what about this? How do I train for this? Or, you know, should I get this part for the simulator? Like it's constant. You can see again, why the guy is, has been so successful. So, you know, that's kind of, I would say, you know, like that's, that's, and it's going to be in close quarters, man. Hopefully if they, if they pull the deal off, you're not going to be working hand in hand with them. Who is the most famous celebrity you have in your phone, Scott? So for instance, like Lewis Hamilton probably has on speed dial, everybody in Hollywood. Who does Scott Dixon have on his phone that he could call up right now and be like, yo, bro or sis, what up? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, I, man, I don't know. I'm not really in, in that world. I've got Lewis Hamilton's number, so I guess that maybe, you know, maybe helps a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Like John Mayer, I've met a few Ooh. times through. So I'm into uh other you know other hobbies as well and and watch collecting has been a, a big uh, part for probably the last 20 years of 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 my life john i've i've met a few times and messaged you know because of the collecting world and in in uh you know watches and things like that and and uh met up with them i think uh was it started this year or something so but yeah i don't i don't know man i'm i'm, I'm pretty much a, <laughs> a simple a, man 
yeah, simple person. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, it's more about, I think, finding, you know, likenesses of, of hobbies and things like that for me. So I hate to bring up bad memories again, but you celebrated your Indy 500 by getting robbed at gunpoint while at Taco Bell drive through. Can you run us through what it was like? Yeah, so I, that was uh, 2017, right? I think it was, we just won the Indianapolis 500 poll. We, we hadn't yeah. won the race. It was before the race. And, and yeah, it was Dario Franchitti and myself. And, and um, you know, the, the media portion goes on for quite some time. We were meant to go to some restaurant in downtown Indianapolis and then it was like 9 30 or something so I was like I I, I think Taco Bell will probably be my last meal you know I'm kind of e- easy like that uh so I said Dara like, let's just go you know we'll go to Taco Bell and uh so we drove down there um and we're sitting waiting in the line and I remember seeing you know out of the corner of my eye something kind of go behind the car and then all of a sudden there was uh there was a gun in in the car and I'm like oh my god like but I thought it was because in, in, in our racing, and especially during the month of May, there's, there's a lot of people, uh, teams, drivers, everybody hangs out for a large portion of the time. And there's a lot of pranks that are, that are, that are uh, put on. So I'm like, Oh man, this has got to be Tony Kanan. Like he's going to pop out of, you know, a hedge over here shortly and, and, you know, be like, Oh, we got you guys. And now I'm like looking at the gun and I'm like, man, that gun looks really real. And then, uh, on Dario's side of the car, there was an, another person trying to smash the window and I'm like, Oh my God, this is getting like really serious. Like this is a pretty big joke. And then, uh, he was asking for wallets and stuff and I didn't have my wallet on me because it'd been locked in the transporter. So I'd actually had my wife's, uh, her, her wallet. And I was like, well, here's a wallet. You know, there's going to be nothing in it apart from some credit cards. Dario, being a Scotsman that he is and has alligator arms, you know, couldn't even reach for his wallet. And uh, luckily, luckily a car pulled up behind us and, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they, uh, they, you know, skated off, but um, yeah, super intense. It was, it was the weirdest thing where it, everything slowed down. And the funniest part was, was then at the, 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 the little speaker box, the person that talked about was like, so are you guys going to order? Like what's taking so long? And I was like, Oh my God, did you not just see what happened? So luckily, uh, like two hours later, they, uh, they, they could see uh, what car these person were driving in and, and they ended up, uh, you know, finding the two people that did it. But yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was nuts. It was, it, yeah. Did you end up getting the crazy. Gordita crunch though? That's most important. We did, man. The cheesy gordita crunch. I get that uh, instead of with you know beef. I get those with beans, and and uh, luckily we, we got it for free. I will say Indianapolis was amazing, man. It would have been maybe a minute, and there was about thirty police cars there, so we were we were in in good hands. But yeah, it turned out that they they were part of like some big gang from Chicago, and uh, we're we're very lucky that it that it didn't turn any worse. But um, yeah, that was a, that was a crazy day, and then and then you know a week later I had that big crash as well. So not not a great night. <laughs> I was just watching Aaron Rodgers versus Drew Brees on Sunday Night Football, and those two dudes are absolutely ageless. We're seeing more longevity in sports across all sports. How for you, Scott, will you know when you're done? Like when is it time to hang up the keys? and be like off into the sunset. I totally agree with you, you know, and, and it's great to see, uh, you know, even the likes of Brady, you know, what he's been able to achieve in, in mm-hmm. football. Um, but, you know, tennis with Nadal and, and uh, Federer, you know, I think you're starting to see these longevities. And, and you know, I think it's, it's uh, there's a lot more tools these days, I think, you know, in, in understanding the body, nutrition, and, and you know, the, the, the fixes that you can get if you've got, you know, something going on, you know, I think definitely helps. 
You know, I think for everybody, it's just a personal choice. You know, I think it's, for me, I think it's probably when the smaller things really start to annoy you. Um, you know, it's probably a good sign of like, you know, you, you, you're starting to get over the situation. For me, you know, the driver's still there. Um, the competition is what really drives me in the sport at the moment. And it's, it's definitely, you know, the highest that it's ever been, you know. So, um, I don't know, the fire burns strong. You know, even talking to, you know, fellow fellow competitors, you know, uh, with Jimmy, you know, he just decided he's like, hey, you know, I'm 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 ready to try something totally different, and and that maybe is where it goes. You know, his his shift has been pretty big to, you know, Dario, you know, I think it set like a number. He was like, once I get to forty, I'm done. You know, so so people approach it differently. You know, and, and Dario's uh, situation ended a lot differently with a big crash and, and a major concussion that kind of sat, sat him out. But I think it really misses the sport and misses racing. And I think had he not had that situation, would actually be continuing to do it. You know, and for us, there's different phases, right? IndyCar is probably the most competitive right now. Then you do sports car racing, you know, Daytona 24-hour, Sebring 12-hour. You know, those things are a little more relaxed with uh, schedule-wise. But I think that's... For me, at this point, with uh, family, you know, with uh, two, you know, two girls, nine and eleven, and then and then we have a, a, a nine-month-old, um, you know, and, and going back to that reset, uh, you, you don't have much time on your hands, and that's that's, uh, you know, I think gives you a little bit of insight of of you know time to to wind it down maybe at some point. But for me right now, it's it's flat out, man. I'm very lucky, very privileged. I love doing what I do, and and hopefully I can do it for a while longer. Because of the danger of the sport. Is there a conversation that's happened with your family where you guys have had to discuss what if the worst happens, what happens next? Uh, you know, I think a lot of the times it's just, it's one of those things that's in the back of your mind, but you don't really talk about it. Well, fortunately, our sport has got a lot safer. You know, I think if you look at the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, drivers were losing best friends every other week. Um, you know, I've been in a in a you know, a couple of bad situations, um, you know, with Tony Renner and then Dan Wilder and then Justin Wilson uh, of, of most recent where you, you lose good friends to the sport. And I think the way you kind of run it through your mind is like, well, they were doing what they loved. You know, they, they, they had spent so much time getting to where they were and, and a lot of, you know, discipline and sacrifices, not for just him, but also his family. You know, his life would have been much worse had he not got to his goal or achieved it or anything like that. So I don't know. I think there's many different ways to look at it. Uh, I think a lot of people in dangerous sports are very good at not thinking about it. At least, you know, I think with, with getting ready for a race, you know, it's the same triggers that, you know, I've had since I was doing go-karts, you know, the kind of the right glove on before the left glove, you know, and how you get into the car always from the left side, you know, things like that are kind of just, they kind of set you into a mode where you don't really think about those situations. But um, I don't know, my wife is, uh, she was a runner for Great Britain. Uh, so she was, uh, you know, a, a, a um, an extreme athlete in, in the sense of, of, of a runner and, and very competitive and very good, you know, with uh, going to Commonwealth Games and being on Olympic rosters and things like that. And, and she understands, I think, the sacrifice and, and, you know, just the mindset that people have when they get to that level that, you know, for her, it's, it's, um, says it right on the back of the ticket, you know, motor racing is dangerous, but, but, uh, you know, for me, I feel so lucky to, to do what I do and, and the love that I have for it, I wouldn't want it any other way. 
good perspective. Do you have any uh, pre-race superstitions or do you have any like, habits or you eat the same meal every day before the race? It's really just, uh, I've got to eat. If I don't eat, man, I'm hangry. And that's not a great way to, <laughs> to start the race. You know, you're going to be crashing and taking people out. So I, I typically like to, to get a good meal. You know, most of the time it's just pretty bland. It's, you know, pasta, chicken, you know, pasta, avocado, you know, tomatoes it's 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 pretty bland because these races can be fairly long you know you need the energy and and you don't want uh your, your stomach turning too bad because you can't you know you can't stop for a loo break so um you know and then i would say taking that one thing i try to do is have at least an hour before the race that that's kind of clear and, and then get maybe a 20 minute nap and but uh, a lot of the times you know schedule wise that's just not possible and especially this year with with uh, how the schedules are really cramped you know that hasn't been possible but that's my perfect day good meal little nap and then get ready to go so Christian Bale has played Ken Miles. Chris Hemsworth has played James Hunt. Daniel Brühl has played Nikki Lauda. Who's playing Scott Dixon in the Scott Dixon biopic? Which A-list? Uh, I, I imagine my wife would say Brad Pitt, you know, because we look so similar. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know, man. Don't give him that um, much credit, you know? <laughs> um, he was mega in that once upon a time, man. So I could I could definitely go down that, uh, that road. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's always a tough one. But I think, you know, he, he, he would do a fantastic job and, you know, he'd make, make me look good. I see Aaron Eckhart. I think you look like Oh, uh, yeah, there we I go. I would love yeah. to see that. I can see a, that. I've heard that before, actually. <laughs> Scott, the, the leagues like the NBA have gotten a lot of criticism for being kind of like, especially as of recently, like buddy-buddy, everybody, you know, competitors are, you know, following each other on Instagram and all that noise is that kind of similar in racing or is it more of uh you know you're my enemy for today you know you definitely have competitors that that uh you know maybe grind your gears a little bit more than others mm -hmm. um or or you know you 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 race differently um and i think that goes both ways so you know, there's definitely uh, competition, and when it's at that height, you know, there's there's going to be some aggression, and and you know, I'd say even if you look at team wise too, you know, there's there's a an immense amount of competition between you know Chip Ganassi Racing and and Penske, uh, to even you know Andretti Racing. I would say that the IndyCar family as a whole is is pretty tight though. You know, uh, I have a lot of great friends that I race against. But, you know, once you put the helmet on, you know, kind of it just transitions. You know, teammates, you kind of give a little bit more room just because, you know, one of the, the things you get told before the race is don't take your team out and that's teammate out and that's from the from the team owner. So you, you typically follow those rules pretty, pretty good. But yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, I think there's always rivalries and, and people we feel a little bit differently about. I would say IndyCar could do actually a better job of maybe diving into those, you know, a little bit more for, you know, for, for TV and things like that. But I would say in a whole, everybody, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a traveling circus. You know, a lot of us are in motorhomes parked right next to each other. You know, we have young families together, the kids play together. Um, so there is that bond that we have, you know, and it's a very dangerous sport too. So, you know, uh, you're not going to do anything that jeopardizes yourself or them uh, in a situation like that. I've always loved hearing from athletes because this is how you can tell who the ultimate competitor is. It's not about what you won. We obviously know Indy 500 is probably at the top of the list of greatest achievements, championships, all great. But I always love hearing from athletes those crushing losses that haunt them, that you talk to them 30 years down the line and they're like, man, I still can't believe I lost that. 
What's that loss for you? What's the one that you wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats replaying in your mind? Well, it's not a short list, unfortunately. But, you know, you're right. That, that, that is the things. Because people say, oh, you know, what was your greatest championship? You know, this one and that one. And, you know, there are some easy go-to answers for that. But honestly, the, the things that keep you up at night are the, are the, are the close misses. And, and this year was, was one of those. You know, in Indianapolis 500, we dominated the race, led, you know, 60% of it. And it came down to a late race strategy where all we were doing was waiting for the leader to run out of fuel bam, caution comes out, they don't red flag it, they let it run out. And, and you know, that hurts so bad. I was up for two nights trying to think about <clears throat> how we could have played it differently. And, and honestly, we, we couldn't have. We ran the perfect race and still finished second. And, and those are the ones that, that, that hurt a lot. And uh, unfortunately, at the Indianapolis 500, I think I've finished second under caution four times. So that seems to be something I need to change, or at least the approach of what I do with those closing laps to make sure actually two or, the, two or three of those times with my, with my damn teammates, so that makes it even worse uh, in a scenario like that. But yeah, you, you're, you're totally right. Those are, those are the things that keep me up and, and trying to you know, better myself as a person and, and also as a, as a competitor. But um, I think in our sport too, because strategy it's something that's out of your hands. You know, I've always, that's where my wife gets so frustrated being a runner. You know, she's the engine. She can do the strategy. She does everything herself, you know? So if she didn't play it, she knew exactly why or, or what she needed to improve. And sometimes for us, man, you get a strategy shift like that and you're toast, you know, and it's, it's hard to swallow. We're seeing this incredible age now of activism in sports. When you think back to the sixties, you had people like Muhammad Ali he really was a pioneer for when I'm in this position of power and public voice, I can make a difference. Now we're seeing an explosion of that where athletes really are using their platforms. Sometimes it can become regressive for your career. I mean, Colin Kaepernick's a great example of that, where you can essentially lose your career because of what you say. For an athlete in your position, Scott, how do you balance having a public voice and trying to say things that can help society while also tiptoeing the other side of the line, which is, hey, I have sponsors, I have fans, I have people that I need to make happy and money that needs to be made. How do you walk that tight line? The easy answer to that is that it's extremely tough. Um, and, you know, the easy answer is sometimes to try and lay low, uh, even though that might not be your instinct or, or your true beliefs. And, and you know, the knock-on effect is, is really tough. You know, there's some that are maybe in a slightly different situation. Uh, it's it's hard, too, for me to comment a lot of the time on, on things that are, you know, okay, I've been living in America for a long time and, and you know, uh, I, I love this country and, you know, the opportunities that you have here, but, you know, I'm, I'm from New Zealand, you know, I spent a lot of time in New Zealand and, and beliefs and differences and, and, you know, how you were brought up are very different to how a lot of people are brought up in America. So, you know, I think for me, the hardest thing is the, is the knock-on effect. It's not just me, you know, there's up to 600 people at our team that that knock-on effect, depending on, you know, how or which way you play it. And if you don't play it right, you know, whether it's with PNC Bank or whether it's with Honda or, you know, it's, it's such a fine line, you know? So I think, you know, you need to do it on your own personal time. I think you don't always have to make a splash about it. You know, uh, there are situations that, that do call for that. Um, but I think you really have to, the biggest thing I've noticed is, is educating yourself. You know, you have to understand the situation. You have to know why you believe that 
and understand it, but also talk to friends about it as well. You know, I think uh, there's, there's definitely been a lot of people caught out that just jump to, you know, an assumption straight away uh, that can have crazy effects, not on just them and who they are, but teammates, um, you know, sponsors, partnerships, you know, a lot of different things. So I think you have to be extremely smart and educate yourself and understand, you know, what, uh, what needs to be done properly. Scott, we'll get you out after this one. I'm just curious, how many speeding tickets have you gotten? <laughs> Man, I've been awesome lately. Uh, for whatever reason, I've I've been flying under the radar. Um, I did have at uh, here in, in here in Indianapolis, we have like a ring road. It's called the 465. So there was a period, I think, about five years ago, I did get two tickets in the space of about 40 minutes um, by two different people, almost in the same spot. Uh, and you used to be able to, you know, Indianapolis, IndyCar driver they'd recognize you or they'd see your, you know, your driver's license and they'd be like, oh, don't worry about it. But now, man, it's all electronic. They just kind of scan that thing and it's toast. You can't even try and get out of them anymore. But uh, I think I'm clear on all my points right now. And now you've just jinxed me. I'm probably going to roll out of here and get a ticket in the next five minutes. <laughs> but uh, no, I've, I've been good. But I've definitely had, I've definitely had my fair share of tickets, I can tell you that. <laughs> All right, Scott Dixon, IndyCar legend, better guy. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Appreciate it. Anytime. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Great seeing you, Scott. All right, everybody. That was five-time IndyCar champion Scott Dixon. Matt, I think we can both agree that we need to start a petition to get Tom Cruise in an IndyCar. What do you say? <laughs> that would be incredible. You know, we had the Jalen interview that started with him getting shot up and then Scott Dixon gets robbed at a Taco Bell. I mean, this was some really kind of edgy stuff for the endless hustle this week, huh? We need to put them together. Scott drives Jalen around. <laughs> All right, that is this week's episode of The Endless Hustle. If you like what you heard, we have another monster interview next week coming out every Wednesday. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We are on social as well at Endless Hustle Pod on Instagram and Endless Double Underscore Hustle on Twitter. Please support us. And if you have any suggestions on how we can make the show better, reach out and we will respond. See you next week, guys.